Welcome to the latest episode of The Grower and The Economist. I'm Michelle Klieger, The Economist. And I'm Peter Kanjoyan, The Grower. Each week, we team up to tackle the biggest challenges facing small and medium-sized growers. We're one part grower and one part economist, just like your business. Welcome to this episode of The Grower and The Economist. Peter and I are excited to have guest expert, Nate Fournier from Home Harvest Central Mass with us today. Hi, Nate. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. So I found you on a Boston area listserv. You've posted a few times on some interesting topics. So thank you so much for taking my email. My understanding is that your business works in edible landscaping. And on this show, we really have been exploring all types of agriculture and gardening and planting and food production and kind of everything in the middle. So you really seem to present this very interesting niche that neither one of us had heard about. So before we start, we'd love to know a little bit more about you, how you started this business, and then what exactly edible landscaping is. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. I'm happy to give a little bit of background. So I actually started off as a mechanical and aerospace engineer by trade. So did my four years and paid my bills and got the degree just to find out in my first job that I did not want to sit in a cubicle all day. And that was kind of the track I was on. But through that process, I learned a lot, you know, and I had always been very diligent about personal development and just trying to figure out what it is, what was my passion? What did I want to do? And I, I didn't really know. And it took a long time to find that out. But I did stumble across just by happenstance, the word permaculture. And it was on a podcast and the way it was described to me as a design science of working with rather than against nature of using the natural systems that have taken millions and billions of years to evolve to create these beautiful symbiotic relationships between all living things and using that as a model for the way that we create our landscapes. And it just really struck at core to my heart. And I decided that that was the path I wanted to pursue. So as an engineer, looking at Mother Nature as the ultimate engineer is really inspirational and really humbling. We think we know it all. And then you look at some of the complex systems that have been created and it's fascinating and just so, so clear that we are barely scratching the surface. And so I didn't really know how to get started in the field at the time, but I read all the books I could. I listened to all the podcasts and I ended up taking a course and I got certified as a permaculture design consultant through uh, Jeff Lawton, who's a very well-known permaculturist. And it was, it was just fascinating. The deeper I went, the more interested I became. And uh, at the time I was kind of had more of a, a pessimistic mindset, outlook of the world. You know, I was in high school and we actually had an ice storm that took out our power for over, it was just about a month. It was like three and a half weeks and we just didn't have electricity. And that was a huge wake up call where there was no heat. There was no gas stations. There were no grocery stores. It was, it was terrifying. And I was just, you know, I was young, but just old enough to realize the fragility of, of all the systems that our entire civilization is built upon. And so that sat with me in, in, in for a long time. And I wasn't sure how it was going to manifest. But looking back now, it's really cool to see how that inspired me to become more resilient and self-reliant and look at those systems that our society is built on and think about 
ways to create a more resilient society. And that's exactly what permaculture design does. I hopped around a little bit. I got into real estate. I got into general construction. I renovated some houses and learned more practical hands-on skills, all with this in the back of my mind, knowing that someday I was going to start a permaculture business. I just didn't really know the economics of it just yet, if it would make sense. And then I had an opportunity to go to New Zealand and I went and lived and worked on this permaculture farm. And for three months, I just fully immersed myself. And that was the first time after all the the theory, all the theoretical knowledge, uh, I was able to get my hands dirty and plant some trees and work with these beautiful people and this really cool culture. And I was hooked and I just knew that that was the time the universe spoke as well. And that's when COVID hit. And so I was in New Zealand and they basically said, you know, if you don't get on a plane tomorrow, expect to stay indefinitely. And uh, it was a hard decision to make because there's nowhere else in the world that'd rather be stuck than this beautiful farm in paradise. But I decided that now is the time to, to teach people how to grow their own food, how to create their own medicine, how to become more self-reliant, how to connect with nature and with each other. And I came home and, and decided, was resolved to start an edible landscaping business. Well, Nate, thanks. Thanks for that background. Michelle and I enjoy hearing our guests' paths and understanding how you got to where you are today. As the uh, the older professor of the group today, I'm going to say something, and I'm sure you feel the same way, uh, that nothing about your mechanical engineering degree is going to be wasted. You're going to find ways to use it, incorporate it. So while you did meander or change lanes, uh, I think your, your path is, uh, has always been headed in the forward direction. So that's really cool. Where, by the way, did you go to school? Uh, to WPI, Worcester Polytechnic Institute. Okay. And that's still where I'm based out of today is Worcester, Massachusetts. Yes, right here in central Massachusetts. So the three of us today are all Bay Staters and that's exciting in a way. Nate, we've had uh, guests on from uh, around the country, and it's always nice to be able to pull draw on our New England roots. Uh, let me start off with a question, Nate. You're you're describing for us permaculture, and we're going to get deeper into that. Michelle and I have had guests on and covered the topic of regenerative farming and agriculture. So at this point, five minutes into the conversation, would you, from your perspective, compare and contrast briefly? permaculture with regenerative practices? Yeah, regenerative agriculture is fascinating and there's so much opportunity in that space and there's a lot of overlap with permaculture. And I think permaculture has evolved over time than what the original Bill Mollison, the original founder back in the 70s when he wrote the book, um, as well as David Holmgren. I think it's changed a little bit and now it incorporates more than just agriculture. And so the original permaculture as a permanent agriculture, which is in direct contrast to the very the the annual agriculture that we currently are sustained by and agriculture i think has now evolved to creating a permanent culture and so again in direct contrast to the to the fragility and the impermanence of our of our culture today and it's just more evident every year that what we're doing is not sustainable and that there is a finite end point to the resources that we're using and so now it's this bigger picture thinking of how do we redefine our cultural systems to become more regenerative and one of the main factors of that is agriculture. Where is our food going to come from? And so this idea of regenerative agriculture, incorporating perennial crops as our staple crops, as our means of sustenance, there's 
so much opportunity and a lot of awesome research going into this right now. Um, I'm a huge advocate of silvopasture and agroforestry, where we're using nut trees as an overstory crop, as a staple crop with a balanced nutrient profile with fats, proteins, and carbohydrates that can then feed animals, that can then create this nutrient-dense meat that then we can eat. And then using those nutrient cycles of the animal manure to fertilize trees and then to plant pastures that all work together in this beautiful, harmonious way that once you plant it and get it sustained, it requires much less maintenance than annual agriculture to, to maintain. So that's, you know, agroforestry and silvopasture is really just grazing animals between rows of tree crops. But yeah, using perennial plants to create our base of sustenance of food. And I think now, Michelle, if I use one word repeatedly, it's instead of chemistry and chemical, it's biology, biology, biology. And where when I was an undergrad at UNH in the mid-70s, uh, we learned about the basic carbon cycle, water cycle, nitrogen cycle. Haven't we come a long way, Nate, where now we're talking about all these intricate cycles, as you're describing the nut tree with the animal, with the human uh, food sources and the balanced diets. I find it fascinating. It keeps me young and energetic. So please continue or Michelle, jump in. There's all kinds of things for us to talk about. For me, the one word would be knowledge. I think that it's that from the, you know, if you want to go with the chemical generation, there was a problem and then a chemical solution. And so you're in the fields and you're applying these sprays or you're making these changes. And I think in a lot of parts of regenerative agriculture, it's taking a step back. It's analyzing data. It's especially when we're talking about the permaculture, it's figuring out how to adjust the whole system or make a tweak which moves the whole system to get to the solution you're looking for. And so it is, it's it's running more tests that we've talked about, but it, it's seeing the system. I think it's a hard shift for some producers because it does mean less time in the field and often more time in front of a computer or analyzing. And whether it's the economics or the biology of the system, we know more, maybe we want to know more. And so we're using that to really change the mindset behind farming. Yeah. And it's been amazing to see the research that's been coming out in just the last five years in all of these things. A lot of it, I feel in the permaculture sphere was a little more earthy, crunchy and anecdotal. And a lot of this is indigenous wisdom that we're looking to, to relearn and to remember and the ways that, that the indigenous people work the land and in contrast to how we work it today is, is there's a lot to be said there, a lot of respect there. But now that the research and a lot of university level science is being done on soil biology, right? Talking about life and the biology versus the chemistry and the chemicals. And so now, of course, they're all blended together, but looking at creating a robust, healthy soil food web to then feed these plants and build the immunity of these plants so that they're not as affected by pests and diseases. And then that creates a healthier plant, which then creates a healthier human. And so by focusing on the soil health, it's this cascading effect of nutrient density and health and vigor and immunity that really creates a healthy society. And again, it's just so clear when you look up, it's like, we are not a healthy society. <laughs> there's so many problems, the way we consume. And, and there's a relatively simple solution now that we know the science. And so that's where the regenerative agriculture and a large scale farming farm 
scale production has so much importance. But now my role is really on the, on the suburban scale, right? And the typical homeowner and how do we localize that those regenerative practices and what can each individual do to contribute if they don't have massive farmland. And so that's where, you know, I, my tagline is that we convert plain grass lawns into abundant ecosystems packed with food, medicine, and native plants. And that's a big part of the permaculture philosophy is that every aspect of your landscape should have at least three functions. For example, if you plant a mulberry tree, you know, not only is that mulberry tree producing fruit that you can eat, it also produces forage. If you have some animals or chickens, it's a very high protein, excellent source of, of fodder. Um, and then it also is native and it has all these beautiful interactions with different local wildlife and pollinators and insects that create the, again, the sustenance of our entire existence is based on these pollinators and, and these natural systems that we tend to destroy. <laughs> Nate, that's, that's really fascinating what you're talking about in the, the, the local, the homeowner's landscape. And Michelle, look how interesting it is. Nate and I have both been on independent paths and have come to the same conclusion where, uh, Nate, you're talking about eliminating the turf and the lawn and incorporating this permanence in the landscape. And my research over the years, Nate, has included uh, water sanitation and agriculture irrigation systems. And it's led me to the conclusion that future wars are not going to be fought over fossil fuels, they're going to be fought over fresh water supplies. And I have trouble when I'm traveling around the country and seeing public spaces as well as private yards, I'm having trouble justifying irrigating, fertilizing, and having a lush green turf. I don't think that's sustainable. I think I'm hearing the same thing from you. That patch of ground, those square feet can be doing so much more than just growing a carpet of grass. Absolutely. I'm a very optimistic person and I like to think of the positive side of things, but I think the brainwashing that we've gone through to believe that a perfectly manicured grass lawn is the status of the American dream is so foolish. They have done such a great job of marketing and selling that to us and we've adopted it in mass across the entire country, millions and millions of acres of land of this non-native resource intensive, useless product that this plant that looks good sure and it does like you know a grass lawn looks nice sure but what i like to do is you know have half of a front yard that's plain grass what it was and then when we convert the other half and put a raised garden bed or three and a couple fruit trees and then lie in the edge of the road with blueberry bushes and plant a carpet of strawberries underneath and then fill it with perennials all these native perennials that have bursts of color throughout the seasons and it and then the life, the sensational garden that that space creates, there's just so much more life and vigor in those types of spaces. And I like to think I really harp on the sensational aspect, like the smell, the taste when you eat things and just the way it sounds, the buzzing of the bees and the birds. And it's just like full of life and vibrancy compared to a grass lawn. And so it's hard to convince people by explaining it, but I think when you see it side by side, it's just a no-brainer. There's so much more opportunity to work our lands in a more respectable way. I have to jump in and just point out that the uh, lawns are actually much older than American. That it is actually, when you go back to British times and before there was any kind of 
lawnmowers or mechanical, the amount of people you would have to hire to keep a lawn just showed your wealth status. And then it was converted actually into one of the reasons people hate dandelions is because you can eat them. And so the fact that you could have your lawn and you didn't need that first crop of the season to be your greens was another way that you could show wealth. And so it's fascinating that like you're turning this that has taken centuries to come out, but like this idea that you had space in your house that you didn't need to grow food on because you were wealthy enough. And now we're saying, well, we are wealthy enough that we want to use this space to do things, or we want to have this high quality product. And it's so fascinating how cyclical history is and, and people and in a lot of ways, that's investing the time to keep that beautiful front yard that you're talking about or backyard shows wealth and time today. Nate, when I'm, I'm going to guess that once you have a homeowner as a client or a customer, it's easy to work with him or her. Your challenge is convincing those that currently don't use any form of permaculture to get them on board. Is that is that correct? The first sell is once you set, make that first impression, you're good. Awareness and education is everything. Yeah, every person that hears about my business, I'll say 90% of the people who hear like, oh, edible landscaping, what is that? It's like, oh, you know, we plant beautiful gardens full of food and medicine instead of grass lawns. Just the look in their eye is fascinating because it's like they're, they just had no idea that there was an alternative. They never knew that that was even an option. They've never considered it. And it's just fascinating to see that that gap, you know. And so it's been interesting where, you know, trying to narrow down the demographic, right, of people who are interested in this space. And of course, the number one are the permaculturists, the people who know or, and are already aware of this. And so they call and it's cool in this this sphere, right, because we're all of like mind. And so it's it's an awesome conversation. They're awesome people. And it's really cool to connect about this shared interest and then other people who call up like oh i just want a, a stone patio or a walkway and then i can come do a consultation and say yeah we can do that for you and then we can also plant you know these hazel a hazelnut shrub over here and then we can plant you know maybe a fruit tree have you considered you know converting this area of your lawn into a wildflower meadow instead and like then again there you can see their gears turning and like oh wow you know that's the thing about grass too, is like when you think about the actual percentage of lawn that is used, you know, I think grass has a place like in parks and in sports fields, but like how many people have a massive grass lawn and they, the only feet that have touched that lawn on a yearly basis is the guy mowing it or spraying chemicals on it. It's like, yeah. it's just useless. Now there's a big movement with micro clover lawns and uh, eco lawns that are low growing, no mow, drought tolerant or wildfire meadows. The people that are hiring you, one, are they using the produce that comes out of it? And two, there are these unintended consequences. I, I did a lot of work with pollinator mixes in medians and stuff like that on highways and with cities. And one of the challenges, everybody likes the idea of planting wildflowers in median strips, but it does increase the bugs a lot, which is a challenge for drivers. So do people take advantage of having this food and medicine grown in their backyard? And do they ever complain about the wildlife that also enjoy the food and medicine that are in their backyard? Yeah, and that's, that's definitely true in the sense of you do invite 
wildlife in. And so it's interesting. It depends on, on the client. Some people are most interested. They want this for the nutrition and for the to offset their grocery bill and for the produce. And so they really do emphasize and they put the time in to, to harvest and to maintain uh, themselves. And the maintenance is a big factor as well. And, and you know, it's romantic to think that you can just grow all these organic fruits and veggies without all that much maintenance or without spraying anything. And uh, at least with fruit trees, it's, it's really particular where it, it is romantic. And then when in reality, it's hard to get a good crop of fruit from a, from a traditional fruit tree. A lot of the cultivars that we're most familiar with have been bred for hundreds of years or dozens of years to be grown in a commercial setting and sprayed by chemicals. They're not grown for disease resistance or for pest resistance. They're grown for shipability and for longevity on a shelf. And so that that's one factor. And so there is education with that. There are amazing cultivars of more heirloom varieties that do a lot better uh, and require a lot less maintenance. But then for deer and for pests, so deer are a huge factor. Deer and rabbits are, are really the two big ones. And so it's one of the, the, the less sexy and the most expensive aspects of, of these gardens, but you do need to protect them. And whether that's with fencing is is definitely the go-to. There's a few different options with fencing, but uh, but also thinking holistically in the sense of you know if you have rabbits eating your vegetable garden and then like you can plant a plot of clover on the opposite side of the yard and maintain that and plant a, a rabbit garden and sacrifice some things for them to enjoy the their harvest on that side of the yard while you can enjoy yours and again it's, it's romantic and they they can get in but physical barriers physical protection by fencing is definitely the the most common solution to those to those issues um, and i'm curious actually about the the bugs and in wildflowers and the highway medians uh, I, I like that i've never considered i know that there's been like an 80 percent reduction in insects and, and some of that study has been by studying insect splatters on windshields on highways and like how there's dramatically fewer insects in general than there have been. It's like the sixth mass extinction right now of, of pollinator decline and insect decline. And so I can't imagine that planting a small highway median or a small roadside uh, hell strip with, with wildflowers is going to create that much of an inconvenience where we'd rather have a sterile environment and no insects than a, a healthy, diverse ecosystem can't leave the varmint part here without a couple extra comments. So yes, Michelle, I'll push back a little bit. So the bunnies and the deer, and I've had bad experiences with deer and ticks and Lyme disease, so I don't want them in the yard anymore. Yet I'm butted up against uh, conservation land, Nate, so they're, they're everywhere. So I'd say, as you guys are talking about a separate uh, bunny clover patch, I'm thinking to myself, well, then we just eat the rabbit. And then we just eat the venison. We just have to change our ways a little bit. Nate, back to your earlier comment about the haze, the uh, nut trees and then the the, uh, the the cattle or whatever eating the, the nuts. We might be able to grow some nutritious venison and rabbit along the way. And the wild turkeys, oh my goodness. Yeah, there's a lot of opportunity there. And it is a cultural thing that you know, we have to kind of get over, especially now with the vegan movement and especially in the sphere, there's there's a lot of that, you know, and we can grow a lot of our sustenance. But the fact is, like, you know, the, the cycle of life exists and, and mammals eat vegetables and, you know, we are omnivorous animals and, and that... Yeah. Again, the nutrient density of venison or that wild rabbit is going to be way higher than uh, a cattle grown in a in a warehouse with 
antibiotics and 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 corn feed you know so um yeah i i I, uh, nate as during my uh, garden center days as as we were winding down the garden center uh, a decade ago uh it, it had reached the point where as a bedding plant grower and then a, a, a grower of vegetable transplants. We got to a point where our plant breeders were developing such ornamental qualities in edible crops that toward the end of my career as a garden center owner, I was saying that our plant breeders have allowed us now to bring the vegetable garden from hidden in the backyard to the front yard as an ornamental. And oh, by the way, you can eat these plants. And I think it's at a very, very low level of what you're describing as a more complex system. And I'm sure that you you don't draw many black and white lines between what is ornamental and what is edible. You're blending all of them together. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a huge barrier is some of the people who are interested in permaculture and go ahead and convert their whole front lawn into a farm then they're the stigma of the neighborhood and people always do turn their nose up because it's wild and it, it looks messy. And so making these systems beautiful is a very important aspect to get more buy-in. And yeah, that's really cool. And there are a lot, especially the medicinal side of things, because that's just knowledge. You know, those plants are already in the garden centers. Those are already pretty common plants. You know, and there's so many that have all these amazing medicinal qualities. And so it's learning and it's a big learning curve because there's, there's a lot to learn there, but it's fascinating. And it's so interesting to see the edible aspects of a lot of these weeds that we see and the medicinal aspects of a lot of the flowers that we know. And so incorporating them in, in educating and creating this blend of function and aesthetic is really w- where I like to position myself and that's that's the best space to be to get the buy-in to get the and that's really you know just it it's the exposure you know and it's the awareness and and when people see it they have to gasp and say wow what is good what is what did they do to their front lawn that is amazing rather than oh you know they're growing food in their front lawn and it looks like crap you know yeah. so yeah finding that middle ground how are you engaging or collaborating with farmers, nurseries in the area, because you all need one another to put together this type of a, an environment. Yeah. So unfortunately I haven't gone too deep into connections with farmers and that's something I'm interested in figuring out a better, a better way to collaborate. But um, as far as nurseries go, I mean, definitely I have a lot of native plants demand. And so uh, trying to encourage more uh, businesses to be, to lean towards natives where the conventional nursery industry, it's doesn't necessarily focus on the natives as much. And so there has been, and again, just the last three years, a dramatic increase in demand for native plants. And a lot of nurseries are taking up that initiative from an economic perspective. It makes sense because they know they can sell them. And um, it's tricky though, because they're not grafted varieties. They're not, they're not perfect clones. And so the repeatability that customers want to expect is harder to find, but that's part of the diversity. That's part of the beauty. And so there is um, a lot of education there as well, but um, I do have my own fruit tree nursery where 
I, I just wholesale order in a lot of more of the rare varieties of fruit. I have pawpaw and persimmon and elderberries and currants and gooseberries and hazelnuts and these things that are much more difficult to find at traditional nurseries. And so that's awesome for me just to have uh, my own stock of those that isn't open retail per se, but I do have it as stock for my service-based installations. I do also operate as more of a general contractor. And that's one cool thing where my path led me down the general contracting route, renovating houses with an eye for energy efficiency and green building. Um, I used some engineering experience to really think about building design. And I was really interested in that space. And now in looking at landscapes, developing relationships with other contractors uh, and buying them into my bigger picture vision where I can look at a landscape, go to do a consultation for a client and give a holistic perspective of, you know, do you want an outdoor living space with hardscapes? Do you want carpentry and arbors and pergolas? Um, If they want a water feature, a pond or a waterfall, um, some excavation is a big factor, grading. And so looking at water flows in the landscape, if we should dig a swale and divert that water or dig a pond on a certain aspect of the land or are there you know some unhealthy trees that should probably be taken down and so i put together a holistic long-term master plan for the landscape using my engineering and design experience and then we phase it in over time but then i develop those relationships with other subcontractors and i act as a general contractor for basically all things exterior and now i'm actively developing relationships with the hardscaping company with the excavator with the arborist with the pond builder where i can come in and give the holistic perspective in-house we'll do all the plantings we do tons of raised garden beds and a lot of the carpentry and then subcontract the rest of the work and so we're creating this economy of of this holistic you know more uh, environmentally friendly space and giving the client one point of contact which is really helpful um and then they can trust that i'll manage the larger scale project uh to their liking and it's, it's really cool to meet other people and to share what i'm doing with others and to give them that opportunity to work on these more unique cool projects i, I like that i commend you on that you're you're in a position or you've positioned yourself nate mm-hmm. so that if if you have to say, no, I don't do that to a customer, you can follow that in the same sentence, but I know someone who can work with us. That That's so important as a, as a young business owner. Good for you. Thank you. And it takes a long time to develop those relationships <laughs> and to really have that trust that they will uh, be in line with our core values yeah. and our principles and ethics. And so I'm uh, looking to develop a, a more formal process of, of onboarding those those people and always refining and, and training, training with them and just showing them like, this is what we do and why we do it. And if you want to work with us, we need you to be on board with these core values of, of caring for the earth and respecting the client and respecting the earth and, and the plants and the, all the life. When we advise graduate, uh, graduate students at, at our, our university levels, uh, we try to teach them or some of us try to teach them, if you don't know the answer, say so, don't pretend that you do. And in a way, you're practicing this on your own level, where if if you can't do it, you're telling them, but you can take that extra step and help them solve the problem. That, that's really cool. Yeah, and it's humbling. It is because I don't know everything. And it's very and I'm very honest with the client and say, I'm honestly not sure. I'll have to talk to my mason about that. Or, you know, and just being able to defer that expertise, which I've dabbled enough, you know, and I consider myself a jack of all <laughs> trades and like I, I spread myself relatively th- like thin, but just deep enough to to be able to sell it effectively and to know and to be able to talk shop with the guys and to be able to explain to them what needs to be done. And so I like that I'm not 
you know, a, a super specialized in any one thing, except for the, I mean, the, the design really, and it's the, it's the bigger picture design. And then I leave the expertise up to the individual trades who have spent their lives working on those. Yeah. It, it works out really well. You know, the three of us, Michelle, we started out talking about how important science is to each of us, you in the economics uh, arena and, and Nate and myself. And, uh, you, you know, we, I cited how I grew up in the, the chemical generation. And in hindsight, we, we look back and we draw some conclusions. But as we were living through it, guys, we, weren't, we didn't consider ourselves the villains. We were working with the best knowledge in your word, Michelle. You talked about knowledge before. We were taking the knowledge that we had at the time and making a living on the farm and in the greenhouse with it. It's only now that our knowledge base continues to grow and to widen and deepen that we can look back and say, yeah, that wasn't such a, that wasn't, you know, how we want to keep doing it. But at the time, you know, it was, uh, let's say honest mistakes. I don't know. It, you know, it, it's, it's hard to look back and, and be. Well, and you, I mean, I, I am not as harsh on the journey that agriculture has taken as a lot of people are. And I do think that, you know, for all of humanity, there has not been enough food to feed people. And at this point, like we store food and we have stores and we have excess and calorie wise, we can feed the world. And now I think that now that we've gotten to that point where we have these systems and we have this ability we can now iterate and continue to do it better. And so I do think that for a long time, being able to feed a population has not been a given. We could argue if you want about whether that's a given today, but on some level, we can feed ourselves um, with some room for error. And I think that we can provide safe food, which is another thing that people take today for granted because they're not used to not having. And, you know, as I think that timing is amazing for your business, Nate, I think that, you know, Peter and I started this conversation because for most Americans, empty grocery stores at the beginning of the pandemic was something they weren't used to, period. I mean, maybe during a storm, depending on where you were in the country or some fluke out, but like, we didn't think about not having enough food for a grocery store and we wanted safe and affordable food and that's what we have. And now the conversation has evolved, which I think is great. And we're asking new things of the system and people are aware of the choices that we've made. And that's why they are coming to Nate and saying, Hey, I want to have some control over my food system. And maybe it's homeowners in suburbia that want to have some control or, you know, we've had several rural growers on that say, look, our communities don't have a grocery store. We want to have control over our food system. And the conversation continues to evolve. For you, I imagine that you have fantastic before and after pictures and video footage and whatnot. Probably have a book or two in you waiting to pop out. 
someday yeah and it's hard with before and afters because it takes you know it's always a little underwhelming when you first plant a garden or you know some of these landscapes because it just takes three to five years before these trees and shrubs to really come into their full mature form um so yeah so it's just creating those relationships those long-term lasting relationships and being able to go back and visit clients and see those and take pictures and and make sure everything worked well too and that's a big learning curve in this fear where you know it takes time to see oh did that work or not we'll have to come back in three years and find out and hopefully it did but uh yeah always learning and that's another one of the most exciting parts about this is like it's always changing it's always evolving and no garden is the same and no garden is static they always change and evolve and that's a beautiful part of what they should be rather than just a mulch bed with three shrubs that's very sage advice michelle you've been to my yard i've been here i'm on my fourth decade on this acre of land and Nate, I consider it, I call it my my opus in that it's it's just taken 30, 40 years for me to transition from the manicured, irrigated turf to a more natural landscape where there's minimal mowing of lawn and, and it's, you know, f- flowers and shrubs and trees and I need to work more edibles into it. But uh, I've learned a lot. I want to thank you for joining us today. And if you have a final thought or two that you'd like to share, now would be a great time to do that. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing what you're doing, for having a podcast, for sharing this knowledge. That's like the foundation of of what's next, I think. like The information is there. We just need to sh- get it out to the people. And, uh, and a podcast is a great way of doing that. So thank you for that. I do want to give a few shout outs. So um, right now, uh, the Permaculture Association of the Northeast, PAN, is running a campaign called Unlawful, and they're putting together some great toolkits and resources. And that's a very low, like the low-hanging fruit in this space is like, conver- like unlawful. You know, and it's like, what, what can you do to become more unlawful and it's planting more flowers and in, in more more flowering shrubs or putting a vegetable garden in i highly encourage people to follow the permaculture association of the northeast that's pan um and yeah so my business is home harvest central massachusetts so this is actually a second location so the original location is out of arlington massachusetts the original founder is ben barkin he started this business in 2008 and it was just a very beautiful serendipitous connection when i came back from new zealand i was gonna start a business and i just stumbled across the existing home harvest and gave him a call and just said, Hey, as I'm starting in uh, a new edible landscaping business in central mass would love to connect. And so I ended up spending about a year just going back and forth with him, collaborating, working with him. And we ended up uh, expanding and opening this location here. Uh, it's not a franchise per se, but I did like buy into the licensing rights and uh, it's just a beautiful brand and beautiful vision. So a lot of uh, respect to him for a lot of the pictures and imagery and, and, um, the knowledge that he has shared with me has been a, a huge stepping stone in order to become successful in, in a relatively short amount of time, um, but still just getting started and encourage anybody interested in entrepreneurship. If anybody, that's one thing I found in the permaculture sphere is you get your permaculture design certificate and don't really know what to do next. And even farmers and gardeners, like there is so much economic opportunity in this space too, and there's nobody else doing it. I am in Worcester. I mean, within an hour radius, I'm the only landscaping company of the 500 landscaping companies that are doing conventional lawn care, conventional chemical 
lawn care is, you know, or, or landscaping. And so um, there's such a high demand for this type of work and it's relatively easy to get started in, in, in a business, you know? And so I just want to see more of these landscapes come to life and I want more people to, to be able to do this type of work and it pays a lot better than farming, unfortunately, <laughs> but you can encourage people to, uh, to do it in their own backyards and, and feel that same passionate, uh, you know, desire um, of, of creating food, creating these systems. Um, so yeah, Home Harvest Central Mass, we're on Instagram, um, well, now we're on TikTok as well and, uh, and hopefully developing a YouTube channel in the future. But if you go to homeharvestcentralma.com, uh, that's our website. You can definitely schedule consultation. Season's winding down now, but I'll be doing consultations and designs all throughout the winter. And we'll also be doing, um, uh, we get a, a pretty sweet wood shop set up in uh, uh, my my shop where we'll be building some compost bins, raised garden beds, and chicken coops uh, throughout the winter that we can sell online or sell as kits that we can then um, either install for you or you can just buy the kit and assemble it yourself and so um, lots of cool things happening so yeah definitely follow follow along and uh, sign up for the newsletter and um, yeah thank you so much again for, for the opportunity thank you for listening to this episode of the grower and the economist if you enjoyed the episode please rate it wherever you listen to podcasts it helps us get discovered by new listeners if you have questions concerns or would like to suggest a podcast topic, please email me at michelle at I love hearing from you. Until next time.